Let's all stand and sing. There is beyond. We'll be reading from Psalm 95, 1 through 11. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at, Ma- at Massa in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For forty years I was angry with that generation. I said, They are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. This is God's word. You may be seated. Good morning. Hope your Bibles are open to Psalm 95. At the beginning of this series this summer on the Psalms, uh, one of the first Psalms had to do with David's desire, the desire above all his desires, to be in God's presence all the time. And we issued a 28-day challenge that first thing you pray in the morning, last thing you pray before your eyes shut and you go to sleep, is to ask God to... to, to uh, allow us to come into his presence and to sense that presence all the time through Christ and and if that wasn't our highest desire in all of life to help us make it our highest desire and so that was a 28-day challenge I hope a lot of you were able to do that and find yourself really desiring it and, and this growing appetite to be in the presence of God at all time I want to before we pray and before we get into this this message this morning on Psalm 95 which is about worship I, I would issue another challenge, and it doesn't matter if you're single, if you're married, if you have kids at home, or if you don't have kids at home. On Sunday mornings, as you're getting ready to, uh, to head off to, to this place to worship God in the community of brothers and, and sisters in Christ, that you read this psalm, not silently, but read it out loud. There, there is just something about hearing the invitation. In Latin, this psalm begins, Venite, oh, come. Come to worship. Come in the presence of brothers and sisters to worship God Almighty. And we'll talk, I'm about to get into the sermon. And I'm fired up about it, but we want to pray first. But that's the challenge, is, is to read this psalm out loud to your children, to your wife, to your husband, to yourself, but to read it out loud. And allow these words to form your thinking about what we're doing together as a church family at 10.30 to, uh, I don't know, maybe 1 o'clock today. I don't know. Uh, What we're going to do together in worship. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, help us to move beyond our understanding of worship as just these acts that we do. Help us, Father, to realize at all of the different levels that we can think about worship that it is a grace and a gift to us. That the very fact that we can come this morning as your children, not as people banging on a door trying to get from the outside into the inside, but as your children to worship, Father, is a sign of the the great grace that this is a road back to you to your presence. 
And not just for this day, but for all of eternity. And so as we go through this really beautiful psalm, Father, that you have blessed us with, we ask, as we always do, that you will give us eyes to see it and ears to hear it in such a way, in such a way, Father, that we delight in you. And out of that delight pours forth the expression of of love to your ear. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. And all the church said, amen. I want you to think just for a second about our mission statement. I want to say it together as a church with our outside voices. We love God. We love people. We change the world. Let's say it again. And that's, this time let's use our outside voices. We love God. We love people. And we change the world. That first one about loving God involves... Uh, just a, a gigantic piece of energy and thinking and time and effort on the part of human beings. Loving God is a really big human project, and it involves worship. And before we talk about worship, uh, I, it, I, I feel like I, I need to sort of define worship a little bit before we jump into the psalm. And I want to do it in kind of an odd way this morning by starting with a couple of objections that, that we hear from time to time when the whole idea of worshiping God comes up. The first objection, it's the whole idea of God demanding worship. It seems so ungodlike. If he's really God and he's aware that he's God, why does he need to be worshiped all the time? He already knows it. And the perception is that this God who craves worship, is, is, is not just craving worship, but compliments. It just seems on the surface so emotionally needy on the part of God, like some vain little person who's always needing to be told that they're great. That's one objection in the modern world to, uh, to worship. But there's a second one. And the second one is this, why would God if he is God, need anything like worship from us. It would be like um, me painting a picture, a portrait of somebody, and then expecting my German shepherd to bark its approval. Does God really need that? The way that I would need my dog to bark approval of something that is beyond comprehension. I want to give you, and this is not going to be a technical definition, but it's going to be a definition that I really hope that you will gnaw and chew on for a long time. But this definition of worship, please write it down on your outline, is this. Worship is inner delight in God made audible. Worship is inner delight in God made audible. One of the, the guys you can read that helps us not only understand the Psalms, but really drives us below ground and into the depths when it comes to worship is C.S. Lewis. He wrote a book some years ago, back in the 1950s, entitled Reflections on the Psalms. And in it is a little section about praise and worship. And he writes something here that helps, I think, make this definition really stand out and just really glow like a neon light in our heart, soul, and mind. He says... I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not only merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. 
It is not out of compliment that lovers keep telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until expressed. And I think we all, we all get that. This, this last week, I believe it was Friday, uh, just a couple of days ago, uh, Gordon Gazelle and Carolyn Gazelle became grandparents for the first time. And they're out in Midland, and they're at the hospital, and, and Taylor comes out, and he says, it's a boy, and the boy's name is going to be Carson. And everybody is happy, and Carolyn starts crying, and, and, and Gordon starts crying, and, and, and they're so delighted, and they're so happy. But what makes the delight and the happiness complete? This text message that I get from Gordon that says, the grandbaby is here, and he sends a gif, or a gif, I don't know how you say it. He sends this animated, uh, of all these people jumping up and down saying, hooray. And he gets this great news about this grandson being born, but it's not complete until he's able to express it to someone. Worship is the inner delight in God. All of his ways, all of his beauty, all of the ways that he's blessed us. I'm walking to class this morning, and you just see it on the face of this sister who has been waiting and waiting and waiting. God has just intersected and invaded her life in such a way that she can't help but just smile and smile and smile. And I could hear her singing at the top of her lungs this morning. Delight in God being made audible. And Psalm 95 teaches us at least four things about worship. It teaches us that it is a necessary part of being a disciple of Jesus of Nazareth, of believing in God, having faith in God. It's necessary, number two. It's done in community. It is about the whole human, and it's about the wow of God. Let's start with that first one. Worship of God is a necessity. I don't know about you, but this last week... Um, sort of feels, and, and the coming week sort of feels like I'm surrounded by death a little bit. And sometimes it feels, and I know you feel the same way because we've had these conversations, but sometimes it feels like we live in a Lord of the Flies kind of world. You, you remember the book, William Golding, back in the mid-1950s, he writes this book about this transport plane during a war, probably World War II, even though it's not specified, that crashes in the Pacific. Uh, those that survive, and they're all boys, they inhabit, they're, they're marooned on an island, and they inhabit this island without, without any adult supervision. And, and what the boys become in this book is not a very high view of humanity. I mean, it is, uh, there, there are levels of cruelty that these boys uh, bring into the lives of each other. The book is, is really about the strong eating the weak. And quite frankly, it just sometimes feels that we're living in the world. I mean, doesn't the world feel like there's not adult in the room at times? We needed to be reminded this morning. I needed to be reminded this morning that there is a God who still has supervision of his world. I needed that fact to be brought home. And so for me, this psalm and its invitation is beautiful. David says twice in the psalm, O come, verse 1, and then later in verse 6, he says, come, let us sing, let us shout aloud. 
Let us come before God with thanksgiving. Let us kneel down. Let us bow down. Let us extol Him with music and song. It's a twofold call to do the most important action of your life. Many of you know John Ortberg. Many of you have read his, his books, one in particular, if you want to walk on the water, you've got to get out of the book. He writes something extremely profound and personal about worship. He says, I need worship because without it, I can forget that I have a big God beside me and I begin to live in fear. I need to worship because without it, I can forget his calling and begin to live in a spirit of self-preoccupation. I need to worship because without it, I lose a sense of wonder and gratitude and plod through life with blinders on. I need worship because my natural tendency, and I have to confess mine too, is toward self-reliance and stubborn independence. I need worship in my life as an essential part of who I am to remind me that there is a God above me and below me and around me and in me who is in charge of the world and in charge of my life and who is more than capable and wise and strong to run this world without me. And the second point is sort of like this. Not only is worship a necessity, but it's done in the community. It's done in community. The psalm is full of references to us. Plurals, first person plurals. Let us sing. Let us shout aloud. Let us come before him in verses 1 and 2. Let us bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, for he is our God. We are the people of his pasture, the flock that's under his care. Now, this is not to say that there is not individual worship that takes place on a daily basis. I worship God Every day, I try to sing, uh, usually by myself, but I sing to God. I say these psalms that we're studying this summer, I say them at night, and when I wake up, and as I'm getting ready to go to bed, I say them during the day. I say them before I go into meetings. I, I want to be in worship with God all the time. I want to express delight for God each and every day. I don't want to just do worship. I want to inhabit worship. That is, I want to live in worship daily. And the reality that there is a God whose Son died on the cross for me and is transforming my life and your life as well. When you think about worship, though in community, it is reflecting a future and a present. When we think about reflecting a future, I mean, think just for a moment about what we're doing in the middle of this city in mass like this, several hundred people who have come together and, and to worship God and to sing praise to Him. What is happening? It's a picture of the world to come. It's a picture of the world to come. When we come to worship God in community, it, it is about the recognition of, of God's creatures, like it was in the very beginning of time in Genesis 1 and 2, where we recognized God and we were with God and everybody recognized that God was God. The world is not that way. What we do this morning is a reflection of the world to come. But it is also a reflection of our present. The church, 
I, I think especially when it comes together for worship, is in a lot of ways like this gigantic jigsaw puzzle of the face of God. You know these, these 10,000-piece jigsaw puzzles? I mean, they try to make them complicated. I mean, you're putting together a 10,000-piece puzzle, and it's like 10,000 honeybees. I mean, it's, it's awful. But there is a sense in which, in which this helps us to understand what it's like to worship together. And, and the essential part of worshiping in community, how it plays out in our life. We have a com- more complete picture of God in this room right now than I ever have on my own. There's um, this big picture of God's face, and, and it, it's like that jigsaw puzzle. The more you put the pieces together, the more clearly you see that face. The more they're connected, the clearer the picture becomes. Worship acts like this. It's a varied group of people like us who are standing together shoulder to shoulder, side by side, expressing delight and joy and pleasure and glee and enchantment at what God has done in all of our lives. And some of those things I've never experienced personally, and the same with you. I've never experienced the loss of a spouse. But when we come together and we see folks who have experienced this, finding their strength and and finding their, their peace and their comfort, their faith being expressed that even in great tragedy, God is there and God is blessing his people. I've, I've never had to overcome a major disease in my life. But some of you have. And it's a blessing for those of us who haven't to stand shoulder to shoulder, side by side with those that have experienced those kinds of things and to hear that faith and that delight in, in God made audible in worship as, as we, we see God at work in different people's lives in different kinds of ways. And when we come together, our picture of the face of God is so much more complete. It comes into view. And one of the things that's really crazy about worship as well is not only does it give us a greater picture of God's face and how he works in individual lives, but the very act of worship itself creates community. Here's an example. Back in 1984, Ellen and I are kind of bebopping around uh, a, a couple of southern countries in Africa. We're looking for a place to, do, to plant a church. And we end up in Zimbabwe at, towards the end of that trip, and she and I travel out to the western states of, of Zimbabwe to a, a, little, a little town outside of Bulawayo called Kwekwe. I met an African preacher of the Shona tribe by the name of Conrad. And we're meeting, he met us at our hotel the next day of Sunday. We meet in the afternoon for church because it takes a long time for people to get there. And we arrive at the address and guess what? It is this asbestos um, bus stop. That's the church building. It's not like any church building I've ever seen in my life. And we get there. We're basically the first people there. Conrad shows up. And all of these people that are coming to worship start showing up. But they're not coming at at, at this very punctual time. It's not like Americans. It's very Eastern, not Western. And when it came time to kind of begin and get the the ball rolling, uh, Conrad would say something like this, Brother so-and-so, and all of this is in the Shauna language, 
but he would say something like this. He would say, uh, when brother so-and-so gets here, he's going to lead the prayer. And when this brother so-and-so gets here, he's going to lead the singing. And when this brother so-and-so gets here, he's going to lead a communion devotional. And we have this brother so-and-so, Mark Absher from the United States, who's going to be delivering the lesson, and I'm going to be translating it. And the next thing you know, here come all these folks from all of the villages, and they begin to show up. And most of them, 99% of them, don't speak English. I did not speak a word of Shauna. We were depending on Conrad. But then we began to sing together. And here are these people that are so completely different from me. Different country, different culture, different uh, ideas about time. But same God. Same problem of sin. Same need of grace. And they started singing in the Shauna language songs that we recognized by their melody that Ellen and I would sing in English. And so we had the songbook in Shauna in front of us. So we sang at the top of our lungs these songs. Didn't have a clue as what these words meant, but we knew the gist of the song because of the melody. And we became this little community. There's, there's a third thing, and that is worship involves the whole human. The psalm references joy and shouting aloud and thanksgiving in verses 1 and 2. This is the emotional part of who we are. It's the emotions of delight and happiness, joy, these things that we bring to worship. But the psalm also references facts about God. In verses 4 and 5, there's all of this creation theology about the depths of the earth are in His hands. The mountain peaks belong to Him. The, the sea is His because He made it. And with His hands, He formed the dry land. It's creation theology, and that is a, a, an appeal to the intellect. But then the, the psalmist also mentions, beginning in verse 6, about all of this bowing down and kneeling down before God, our Maker. These are references to acts that are the submission of the will. It's a reference to the volition. It's, it's our intellect, it's our emotional life, and it's our will. Let me, I'll give you an example of how this works in worship. Uh, Steve Flores is sitting right here, one of my best friends in the entire world. And if you ask Steve, name the great loves in Mark's life. He'll start with God, and he'll go to Ellen, and he'll go to the kids, and he'll go to the, you know, the, the, the family and the, the granddaughter. And somewhere on that list of Mark's great loves, Steve will tell you, tacos. <laughs> tacos. One day he calls me up and he, he knows I love tacos. And he says, I, we need to go out to lunch because I want to introduce you to a taco that's called the pirata. I said, a taco named after a pirate. I like that. It's probably got treasure on the inside. So we go, we go to this restaurant right down the street here. We order two pirata tacos apiece. I take a bite into one of those things and I look at Steve and I say, I've never been this happy. That was the emotional side of it. And I look at Steve, and he goes, I know, right? And I said, what is in this thing? And so I open it up, and it's, it's fajita, beef fajitas, and it's grilled onions, and it's, it's refried beans, and white queso, and guacamole, and all of these kinds of stuff. And I go, I think I could make this appeal to my intellect. And it was so good that I decided... The next day, I'm going back there for lunch. It had attacked my volition and will. 
That's what we bring to worship, brothers and sisters. It's all of who we are. It's the emotion of singing out. It's the intellect of engaging in God's Word. It's, it's, it's standing in respect and reverence when the Word of God is being spoken. It's in our heart, surrendering our will to His and, and making sure that, 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 that we sing that out and we pray that out as we come together. And this is what makes worship so transformative. And this is what makes it change us. I mean, so many times we're, we're like the cat that, that wants to read a diet book or a get healthy book, but he reads it while he's shoving a pizza down his throat and laying on the couch. It's only going to go so far because it doesn't involve all of who he is. And then the last thing, worship is an inventory of the wow. You know, if you go into my library at the house or at the church office over here, you'll find a lot of books on Abraham Lincoln. Uh, books on his life, books on his leadership style. Love the latest movie. Thought that the scene with the, the second inaugural address was worth the price of admission. It was so great. I believe in Abraham Lincoln. But I don't know him personally. What David does in this psalm is to write a list or an inventory of God's attributes. And on that particular day that this psalm is written, David's life must have been a little shaky because he likes to think of God in this psalm as a rock of my salvation. My experience of God is visceral and palpable and tangible. He's the rock beneath my feet. He writes in verse 4 that he's the great God, the great king above all gods. And then he begins thinking back to Torah in Genesis 1 and 2. In his hands are the depths of the earth and, you know, the rest of that in verses 4 and 5. And David thinks about it until it gets all the way inside of him and it melts him. And in verse 6 he declares, come, oh come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. He's not just our creator. He is our God and we are his people. The people of his pasture. The flock that's under his care. And that's why this psalm is such a great psalm to think about and, and to hear repeatedly as we get ready to go to worship on Sunday mornings or begin, um, you can read it on Saturday night as well as you get ready for Sunday morning to come together at 10.30 in this place. But what this psalm is, is helping us to understand is that worship is not, just, it's not just something that we do that has no effect in our life. That worship is at the very core of what it means to believe in God and to know who God is and have a relationship with God. It is to take that, that inner delight that we have in God and to make it audible, as Lewis says, in order to complete the enjoyment of it. That I can't wait when the good things happen to me to share it with somebody else. And when it comes to the great things that God has done in our life, we can't wait to get to a place where not only is it appropriate, but it's invited for us to sing with like-minded people and to share with a congregation the delight made audible, the delight in God, the joy in God made audible with each other. We're going to sing a, a praise song, or we're going to sing a song of invitation right now. And some of our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. One of the things that we could begin today is that relationship where all of these great blessings of God come into your life in such a way 
that you become his child. And you're not beating on the outside trying to get in, which you can never do. It's only by his grace that that door opens wide, wide, wide. And you are invited to come inside the, the, the world of God. And if there's any way that we can minister to you this morning, we want you to come forward as we now stand and sing. Years